beautiful bird. Got a photo? Share it with our listeners. Begin at our website, birdnote.org. I'm Michael Stein. KPFT Houston. Good afternoon. Welcome to the New Capital Show. I am Leo Gold, and it is a pleasure to be joining you here at a couple minutes after 3 o'clock. You are tuned in to KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas. I want to thank everybody for supporting us during our summer sizzle pledge drive. Are we still doing that, that soft closey thing? We're always doing that. Just go to kpft.org. I want to thank uh, returning member Jerry Devine of Spring. Jerry, thank you very much for your kind pledge of membership uh, <clears throat> during the uh, past week when I was not on the air, and, and Jerry did it via the web, just like you said, Doyle. He did exactly what you are prescribing. And so so we've raised most of the money that we need to raise, but we're not totally there. I, again, want to thank uh, everybody for their great enthusiasm for Lynn Stout last week. Just to remind you, Lynn Stout was on New Capital Show last week. We did a one-hour interview about her book, The Shareholder Value Myth, and the discussion about how corporations have gone wrong by focusing monolithically, totally, only, on shareholders and shareholder needs and and have ignored the other obligations that directors have to look at other important participants in corporations, whether that's communities, whether that's employees, and to remind you the fascinating thing that Lynn Stout has brought out in her book, again called The Shareholder Value Myth, is that there is nothing that we can see in the entire body of American jurisprudence that dictates that a board of directors owes a total fealty, a total allegiance to shareholders. Nothing. There's nothing in the law. Tell me that doesn't blow your mind, because because the way it's talked about Shareholder, 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 shareholder. Got to do it for the shareholders. The way it's talked about would lead you to conclude that 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 obligation, 
shareholder primacy, shareholders above all else, and shareholders without any consideration to anything else, that that is somehow written into, woven into the fabric of American commercial law, American corporate law. But as Lynn Stout, professor of Cornell, pointed out last week, it ain't so. Not only is it ain't so, it is nowhere to be found. Hardly. She gave us the two exceptions, the two cases where where uh, where obligations to shareholders are discussed. And those two cases, one of them is very old and has been surpassed. This was a case between Ford Motor Company and the Dodge Motor Company back in 1912 or so. And a more recent one in 1986, the Revlon case. And both of those cases are the exceptions to the rule, which prove the rule. They are the exceptions that prove the rule. And the response that we got when I offered that book last week was incredible. I mean, we just suddenly the phones went crazy. Everybody wanted to pick up on the shareholder value myth. And I want to thank everybody very much. And, of course, Lynn Stout. So we've been off the air for a couple weeks from taking your calls. We're going to return to taking your calls today. 713-526-5738, 526-KPFT. I've been collecting uh, some tidbits uh, just uh, off the news. One of them, First Solar, is going to build Indian solar uh, power, Indian, you know, solar plants in India. First Solar, by the way, has been making a very, very impressive comeback uh, in the stock market and in, and in its revenues. They have, they seem to have cracked the way to go about solar, uh, solar power. Uh, a couple of other things I'll be talking about: uh, the Republican platform on on mortgages, the secret LIBOR committee, still trying to figure out how to to set interest rates. Uh, Goldman Sachs bets on social impact bonds, diluted individualism. I want to get to that. First, though, I want to get to something that came to me that I thought was really, really interesting. And I got it from the Sierra Club. I got it from the Sierra Club. And uh, you probably know about U.S. News and World Report's annual ranking of the top schools, top universities, top colleges. Well, this is, this is from the Sierra Club. The top ten America's coolest schools, and I think they mean the greenest schools. So let me take you through what the Sierra Club is ranking, and maybe your school is on it, of the of the cleanest, greenest, coolest schools as rated by the Sierra Club. And, and that's increasingly becoming important, I think, to young people who are going to school. They want to know, is the school that I'm going to, does it care about sustainability? Does it care about ecology? Does it care about global warming? Is it taking steps to recycle? Is it taking steps to cut its energy use in the buildings, etc.? Number 10, at the number 10, everybody loves a top 10 list. I don't do very many of these, but let's face it, everybody loves a top 10 list. Drum roll, in the top 10 position, number 10, Kula School, Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. It has the longest running program since 1984 for the study of appropriate technology. That is, eco-positive advances on a small local scale. Students there get hands-on lessons in alternative power, low-impact transportation, and organic agriculture. All right, Appalachian State University. So all you young people out there listening to New Capital Show today, all of you seniors, I know that our listening audience kind of skews (laughs) middle-aged, but, uh, but, I'm hoping that after the fantastic job that the Generation Crew does to bring in our young listeners, maybe you're still listening, and several of you may be seniors, and you're looking for a place to to hang your hat when you go to school. So number 10 was Appalachian State University. Number 9, University of California at Irvine. Did you go there, Doyle? No, I go to Texas Southern University in Third Ward, Houston. All right. You think they're going to make the list? Uh, sadly, probably not. Maybe not. We'll see. We got eight more to go. University UC Irvine. UCI has a dozen extracurricular environmental groups, so students are strongly encouraged to take part in eco activities. The school hosts a high profile toward a, tw- a sustainable 21st century conference. It recycles more than 70% of its trash. Of course, let me remind you the city of Houston, what are we, maybe 5%? 
very, very, very pitiful. Uh, and they have hydration stations to help reduce bottled water waste. So you you fill your you fill your metal uh, drinking bottle at hydration stations, and they reduce bottled water. Love it. Number eight, Yale University. I'm sure we've got some Yaleys out there listening, some bulldogs. If so, here's what's going on with your alma mater. In 2005, Yale committed to reducing its carbon dioxide emissions 43% by the year 2020. The campus now has 14 lead buildings, including the Platinum Certified School of Environmental and Forest Studies. Uh, yeah, uh, if you didn't know this, Yale has one of the top forestry programs in the in the country. It's true. All right, so that's Yale. Any Yaleys out there? Give us a call. Was that going on while you were there? Number seven of America's coolest schools, according to the Sierra Club. I'm sure we've got some of these out there. Duke University. Any Blue Devils out there? Duke is number seven in Durham, North Carolina. Duke is trying to achieve climate neutrality. So it's a leader in generating and buying offsets and coaching other schools to do the same. Climate neutrality. Number six of the top ten coolest schools. The University of New Hampshire. Got it? University of New Hampshire. UNH sells renewable energy credits off of its landfill gas pipeline and then spends that money on its own efficiency projects, reducing not only the campus's emissions but also those of the entire state. The school also runs an organic dairy research farm, allowing students access to a milking Jersey herd of cattle. That's number six. Number five. Not far from University of New Hampshire. UConn, the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. The new composting facility at UConn processes up to 15 truckloads of manure per week. And campus recycling programs are extensive. Students know what to do with everything from outmoded cell phones to smelly sneakers. Uh-huh. They know what to do with smelly sneakers. <laughs> it's not what I was doing when I was in college with smelly sneakers, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, I got a Don't fact. Don't look at me like that. Okay, what's what's the fact? Okay, uh, well, it comes <laughs> it comes from uh, the New York Times. They, uh -huh. they said that Houston is the lowest in all the major cities with only 2.6% of its total waste being recycled. Yeah, that's an old article, of course. That's the article before we got uh, to city council and it upped it. But, yes, that is that is the article that launched New Capital Show into the area of uh, recycling activism. Yeah, it's uh, We're better than that now. That's an old article. But, yeah, your point is taken, Doyle. It's also had a caller say, you forgot to mention that UCAL Irvine yeah. are called the Ant Eaters. I didn't know that. I guess it must have been a felt, you know, a fellow anteater out there. He he was concerned. Well, I'm going to give you all a very interesting fact that most of you probably don't know about anteaters. Um, the animal in Texas, also known as the armadillo, you may think is a native to Texas, but it's not. The armadillo is not native to Texas. It is of the anteater species, and it's uh, originally from South America. And it's been made its way up, I think, in the 19th century from South America. Wow. How about that? So so armadillos are anteaters. And the, you're telling me the, the UC Irvine mascot is also the anteater. That's correct. All right. Yep. Number four on the list of top ten coolest universities, coolest schools. UW. Everybody know UW? No, the University of Washington, also known as UW. I think they're the Huskies. UW pays compulsive attention to buying local. More than half of the school's food is produced within 250 miles of the campus. Wow. Half of the school's food is produced 250 miles of the campus. Administrators are also firmly committed to using renewable energy. 
Don't know what that means, but but there it is. They're firmly committed. Number three, here we go, top three. Stanford University. Stanford University, one of our great institutions of learning, the place that, that uh, births so many technology companies, including Google and Yahoo, uh, among others, located in beautiful Palo Alto, California. At Stanford, hungry students can pick from more than 20 courses about domestic and global food systems. God, I wish I was going to school these days, Doyle. <laughs> uh, yeah. All I got to study was, you know, like Russian history. And, and, I mean, all before these great, great courses made it onto the campus. Hungry students can pick for more than 20 courses about domestic and global food systems. Dining halls and campus farming workshops harvest ingredients, including barley for beer, from their own organic gardens. How about that? At Stanford. So while they're taking a break from uh, writing code, I guess they, they could do some composting. Number two, the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, based in Atlanta. Number two on the list of America's coolest schools. And frankly, I don't, I don't know that they're ranking these in terms of, you know, one's better than ten. It may just be the top ten in general. Georgia Tech steers students toward taking at least one class about sustainability. Got that? So they try to make it where you can't get out of school without having it taken at least one class in sustainability. And it offers more than 260 such courses to choose from. 260 courses in sustainability at Georgia Tech, one of our nation's great engineering schools. The school invests its endowment responsibly and aggressively prevents dining hall waste. Who says the future is not bright? It is. And number one, last on the list here, another part of the University of California system, UC Davis. UC Davis is over-the-top thorough about all the nitty-gritty aspects of good stewardship. Lots of time and money go toward a well-rounded set of efforts, including being vigilant about using the school's purchasing power for good, diverting around 70% of its trash from landfills, and offering sound transportation systems. Uh, they just opened the UC Davis West Village. It opened last October, and it is America's largest planned zero net energy residential community. That is the top school on the list, UC Davis. Don't think the future is not bright. It is bright. Don't think that our children and our young people don't have their heads in the right place. They do. I will note, of course, that there is not a single school in Texas listed <coughs> here on the Sierra Club's top ten. All you Texas students out there, University of Houston, Rice, are you listening? UT... TSU, you guys are important. Next year, let's let's see one of let's see one of you guys wind up on the list. Wouldn't that be great, Doyle, to have a Texas school wind up on the top ten? I would love why it. Why not? Why not? Why not? I say why not. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll give a couple of news items, and we will take your calls and hear what's on your mind. Seven one three five two six five seven three eight. 526 KPFT. Here's Radiohead.
Welcome back. Oh, that's good stuff, Doyle. Thank you. Wonderful. I love it. 713-526-5738. It's the New Capital Show. And uh, lines are wide open if anybody wants to get in. And so let me <clears throat> let me move into another mode right now. Uh, this is a piece from the New York Times, a commentary that caught my eye because uh, it is, to me, the truth. Uh, this is a piece from Furman Deborah Bonder. It's the guy's name, Furman Deborah Bonder. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the Maryland Institute College of Art and the author of Spinoza and the Stoics. And the title of this piece that he has authored is called Deluded Individualism. Deluded Individualism. And, uh, well, here, let me just give you a little taste of it. He says, there is a curious passage early in Freud's Ego and the Id, where he remarks that the Id behaves as if it were unconscious. The phrase is puzzling, but the meaning is clear. The Id is the secret driver of our desires. The, do the excuse me, the desires that animate our conscious life. But the ego does not recognize it as such. The ego, what we take to be our conscious, autonomous self, is ignorant to the agency of the id and sees itself in the driver's seat instead. Freud offers the following metaphor. The ego is like a man on horseback struggling to contain the powerful beast beneath. To the extent that the ego succeeds in guiding this beast, it's only by transforming the id's will into action as if it were its own. By Freud's account, conscious autonomy is a charade. We are lived, as he puts it, and yet we don't see it as such. In other words, we think we are in control. <laughs> we think we are responsible for everything. This is me talking now, right? We think everything that happens to us, we have brought about. This is not a trivial issue that I'm talking about here. This is not some esoteric piece of philosophy. It actually is now in the mainstream of U.S. political, political discussion. When we are talking about ads, political ads that are being targeted at President Obama, when he got up and made a talk where he said small business owners... Right? You remember the you didn't do this controversy? You didn't do this. And they took a little snippet. And, of course, the Republican Party went nuts. What do you mean that small business owner? And they've got ads that are going on where they interview small business owners. What do you mean, Mr. President, I didn't build this business? Who do you think built this business, Mr. President? I built this business. Right? And so this is the political argument. Rugged individualism, as, as our author here calls it, diluted individualism, versus notions of, of whether it's community or simply external forces that cause us to live our lives as we do. Again, by Freud's account, conscious autonomy is a charade. We are lived. We are lived. We don't live, we are lived, as he puts it. And in fact, I think Buddhists would say much the same thing. And yet we don't see it as such. Indeed, Freud suggests that to be human is to rebel against that vision. The truth. It's to rebel against the truth that we are lived. We are born through causes and circumstances that result in our birth. We didn't do anything to have that happen. And then we are raised from total helplessness. We are taught. We are provided with food and clothing, shelter. We didn't do that. And then we have this notion, right, when you become an adult. What does that mean, we became an adult? That means what? Oh, you are now in charge of everything, <laughs> all right? We flipped a switch. 
You were in school. It was getting paid for. You were getting fed. You were getting sheltered. Bammo. Day, the day after. Now I'm an adult. I'm in charge here. Everything that happens, I do. I'm no longer being lived. I'm doing the living now. We tend to see ourselves as self-determining, self-conscious agents in all that we decide and do, and we cling to that image. But why, he asks, this is the author, why do we resist the truth? Why do we wish, strain, strive against the grain of reality to be autonomous individuals and see ourselves as such? Meaning, what's at stake here? What's the big deal about us just saying, you know what? We are lived. We, we are not in control. Things happen to us. What happened to this person? You know, Sheldon Adelson, let's say, the guy who's buying the election for Republicans right now. What happened to him was that things came to him. He was lived, and it resulted in a big casino fortune. But this whole strain of rugged individualism, what the author here would call deluded individualism, it's a delusion. It's not a truth. We are not in control. We're not in control. Sheldon Adelson's not in control, wants to control. He wants to buy the election. He's not in control. I'm not in control. You're not in control. We are all lived. The author says perhaps Freud is too cynical regarding conscious autonomy. But he is right to question our presumption to it. Right to question that we're in charge. He is right to suggest that we typically and wrongly ignore the extent to which we are determined by unknown forces and overestimate our self-control. The path to happiness for Freud, or some semblance of it in his stormy account of the psyche, involves accepting our basic condition. And let's be honest here. It certainly was not Freud who was the first to recognize that. It was Buddha, as far as I know. It was Buddha who was the first to recognize that our suffering arises from our clinging to the idea that we're in control. That we have the ability to determine totally our lives. doesn't mean that we don't have choice. It doesn't mean that we don't have thought. doesn't mean that we're not able to make decisions. But it means that there's a fundamental recognition, as Buddha understood, that we are all part of a large, evolving universe, which is interconnected, and of which we are simply a piece an incredibly small piece. I had a gentleman in my office today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you who it is. Uh, Mark Steinbach is the executive director, and I think Mark will be okay with me talking about our conversation. He's the executive director of the Texas Land Conservancy, and we do some work together in helping plan their organization and set strategy. and And I like talking to Mark. Mark's doing great work to um, to bring conservation, land conservation, to Texas. And if you have any interest in that, you have land that's, you know, let's say pretty sizable, uh, that is worthy of conserving, Give me a neat, drop me an email, leogold at newcapitalshow.com, and I'll put you in charge with Mark. But our discussion was how Mark has trouble when he comes in to to Texas landowners who tend to be very conservative and self-reliant and he and he talks about a conservation easement an easement a conservation easement is when you put legal restrictions on land to prevent it from being developed you the landowner do that because you are interested in seeing it conserved and we talked about the fact that many Texans see themselves as rugged individualists right Furman De Deborah Bonder here would say it's diluted individualism but what what mark and i in our discussion called rugged individualism and so we were talking about well how can the texas land conservancy have a discussion because they're because the people they're discussing land with are always suspicious of conservation easements 
thinking that that's that's some sort of plot, plot, some sort of liberal communist plot. That there would be something that impinges on your land, and yet, yeah, a conservation easement is it is an entirely private matter by the landowner. And so Mark and I talked about strategy, and I suggested, well, Mark, you shouldn't talk about easements. You should talk about the fact that there's two ways to do conservation. The federal government can do conservation one way through taking it to Congress, and it's got to go through committees, and it's going to take 10 years, and then the budgets are going to be out of whack, and it's going to be gerrymandered and, and picked over and apportioned. Or you can do it the self-reliant Texas way. That's what I suggested Mark say. Do it the self-reliant way. Let's give Let's give landowners the illusion that they're in control of their land and tell them let's not talk about conservation easements let's just talk about let's do conservation the texas way the rugged individualist way in other words for large segments of our population in which we have an inv a vested political interest a vested environmental interest we have to play like it's all about them right I mean, think what the modern Republican Party is all about. It's about play. We're going to play that it's all about you. Your business? Oh, yeah, you made it all. <laughs> your land? Fine. Yeah, you can do your own conservation. easement. We're going to get the federal government out of there. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It's all based on the deluded idea that we are all individuals and that rather than being lived, which really is what's going on, it's the truth. We're in control. And yet, it is the way that we have to approach large segments of our population. Wink, wink, we'll play along. Hey, dude, it's all about you. We get it, yes. <laughs> that business, you did it all. Oh, no, no, that's okay. There were high school teachers who were good and taught you how to read and taught you math skills so that you would then be able to go on to university and learn further and develop engineering skills and da 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 Oh, no, they had nothing to do with building that business. Oh, your parents kept you fed and you were well-raised and well-adjusted so that you could help employ other people and knew how to work in teams. Oh, no, they had nothing to do. It's all you. You built that business. And when somebody like the President of the United States then comes out and he gives what is a, a fairly authentic speech, it took a lot for you to build that business. It took customers it took suppliers it took finance that was coming in and available to you it took all of those things for you to do the business and yes you too are a part of that incredible wonderful thing you did in building a business and and we dare say an absolutely critical critical component look what happens when you begin though to adopt a different political viewpoint which begins with a different world viewpoint a different psychological viewpoint i am being lived i'm not in control i'm the beneficiary or in some cases the victim of things that have happened to me i have choices i need to make every day i have to strive to make as good a choice as i can possibly make yes that is the obligation of the individual but at the same time i recognize that some things are out of my control and that my responsibility and my thanks goes to a much wider circle, a much wider universe than just to me, to me alone. Selfish, little, old, ego-driven, id-driven me. What an amazing transformation you can make politically personally when suddenly you are being lived rather than in control of everything you can step aside when it's time for you to step aside you can step up when it's time for you to step up you can let go when it's time to let go you can take hold when it's time to take hold you become a much more multi-dimensional person and political philosophy becomes much more multi-dimensional too look at the century that we've just left the 20th century a century of ideology if you're a market capitalist it's all you could be there's no room for government in that picture if you're a totalitarian capitalist it's all uh, i'm sorry totalitarian communist it's all you could be there's no room for businesses privately owned ones 
Right? I mean, people got put to death for having the wrong idea. Repeatedly. In the hundreds of millions, I would estimate. For having the wrong idea. Or the idea that someone else thought was wrong. When you decide and understand that you are lived... When you understand that rugged individualism is diluted individualism, and when you understand that only community at the expense of your sense of self is also a way to get yourself in trouble, and you come to a happy medium where you appreciate the wider world and yourself, when you appreciate the individual and the communal, When you understand these things, it makes it possible to solve, to truly solve real problems. Your toolbox expands exponentially. When all you have is a hammer, the market only, government only, nonprofits only, the individual only, whatever. When all you have is a single tool in your toolbox, what kind of carpenter are you? You can't build very much, as they say, if everything looks like a nail. You're going to constantly be trying to smash things with hammers. And some things, my friends, don't respond well to hammer blows. They weren't meant to receive hammer blows. They were meant to receive a turn of the screw. Or a squeeze of the pliers. Or a pass of the saw. And then you can actually make something. 713-526-5738-526-KPFT. Doyle is suggesting we take a short break, and we will. When we come back, still waiting for you all to talk. Maybe the KPFT listening audience is... They like hearing you talk. <laughs> they like hearing me talk. Uh, stunned, got, into, stunned into submission. We got a lot of good responses during the pledge drive. <laughs> and now that the pledge drive Everybody's is, tired. is over, let's we, we want to hear from you. Yeah. So. 713-526-5738. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll see if anybody wants to step up into the mic. One, two, Brakeman is letting off some steam. This has to be the slowest train that I have ever seen. And the Sandman's waiting to deliver me my dream. Guess I lay my head against my elbow in the wind. Watch the wind. Come, watch the wheel. Roll on, roll on, a little train. Big man, blow your whistle, throw your weight up on the chain. Don't make way, whatever will be, will be. Between the sad man and the brave man Man, that's nice. What is that? They're called the Monsters of Folk. Wow, it's yeah. just so pretty. It's like a trio of guitar players oh. and singers. That is just gorgeous. Yeah, the song is called The Sandman, The Breakman, oh. and Me. Doyle, thank you. Man, mm-hmm. you're really playing some beautiful stuff. All right, we got calls coming in. We're going to take them in just a second. Jan, Mark, and our friend Luda. But um, I think you all understood where my talk was going uh, into the realm of the political. And and um, and certainly Furman Deborah Bonder goes there in this piece on diluted individualism himself. He, he gets all the way there. He says, he says, thanks to a decades-long safety net, 
We have forgotten the trials of living without it. You know, now that those who say we want to get rid of Medicare, we want to get rid of Medicaid, we want to get rid of these social safety nets, he says we've had we've had these communal resources. We've had these things that help people up when things happen to them that are bad. When bad circumstances come to people and they are poor and they are sick. He says we have now forgotten what it's like to live without them. This is why historian Tony Jutt, who passed away a couple of years ago, one of our great historians, he says it's easy for some to speak fondly of a world without government. We can't fully imagine or recall what that is like. We can't fully appreciate the horrors that Upton Sinclair witnessed in the Chicago slaughterhouses before regulation or the burden of living without Social Security and Medicare to look forward to. Thus, we can entertain nostalgia for a time when everyone pulled his own weight, bore his own risk, and was the master of his destiny. That time, he says, that time was a myth. It was a myth. But the notion of self-reliance is also a fallacy. Let's go to the phones. Jan is waiting on line one. Jan, welcome to the New Capital Show. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to point out a couple things. First, uh, the uh, true message of Jesus was to was the death of self mm-hmm. and the and the raising of consciousness of uh, everything around you. Yes. And then, as far as land goes, uh, to be. Uh, so uh, arrogant to think that, you know, we can control the land. We need to be the stewards of the land. That's right, Jen. And, and uh, I, I can't remember. I think it was maybe Chief Seattle uh, who, who gave a speech. I, I could be wrong about this, but he gave a speech and he said, how, you know, how can we own the land? We can't own the land. We are, we are uh, there, we're there to serve the land. One of the... Uh, uh, Christopher Moore's uh, book with, 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 with talked about when the pilgrims came over and, and started talking about the land, you know, the Indians just laughed at them, you know, that they didn't even have the concept of owning yeah. the land. Yeah, didn't know what to make of it. Jan, thanks. Great to have you. Thanks for the call. All right. Thank you. Appreciate your comments. 713-526-5738. Plenty of lines open right now. And uh, Mark is up next. Mark, welcome to the New Capital Show. Yeah, the thing that's always bothered me about, you know, this rugged individualism, it it was the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago that gave us the ability to create a surplus that gave people the ability to do other things than forge off the land. Yep. They could become bricklayers, they could become architects, then they built cities, then they built institutions to support that, then they built political systems. So everyone who exists today is standing on the backs of hundreds of millions of people <laughs> that came before yeah. them. No one exists in a vacuum. And the thing that right. gives us all the ability to live today Today is our ability to produce a surplus of food, and that is being threatened today by what's going on with climate change. And I don't think anyone really realizes that. Right. That's- so, so Mark. So the question becomes: Why? What is it about this large, massive political wing in our country, and I dare say in other parts of the world, that what is it that's so wrapped up in this delusion that? You know, we're 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 totally individuals, totally responsible for our own positions, and and nothing else is out there. What what does that come from? Is it a is it a con job? Is it an intentional deception? Is it rooted in is it rooted in uh, economics and materialism and and trying to and try? Is it is it the people who have trying to absolve themselves of any responsibility to help those who don't have? What's going on? I think personally it may be an evolutionary thing where the people that are just uh-huh. really like lizard brain is what you could say. Yeah. They can't get past that physically with what they have. They can't uh, think much more beyond that. It's when you talk to these people, you can't argue with them or you, they will not be persuaded whatsoever. To them, it's, it's like a religious belief. You're not going to, you're not going to change their view with logic, with science or with reason. Right. And I think it's relatively, um, a, you know, maybe 50% of the population's like that. 
but they have a very loud voice. And in politics in this country, um, they've come to the fore in the last 30 years with the with the politics that they've created. So, so what so what does it take? Does it sit? Does it take sitting down on a cushion for you know and meditating? Buddha would say, you have to sit. You have to sit down. You have to sit in silence. Uh, to feel, to to drop away your lizard brain. I mean, that's the right. that's the appropriate uh, phrase. It's a lizard brain. How do you drop this reptile brain and find uh, what what others call Buddha mind? Right. I'm not sure how you do it. I find these people to be very reactionary and very angry. So it's really hard to have a, a any type of conversation with them whatsoever. And I don't know the solution, but anyway, I'll get off the call and okay. let you go. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I was on vacation recently, and I had some fairly heated arguments with people I was meeting, uh, among them some wealthy people with, with second and third homes in Colorado. And and um, I heard this constant refrain of, of uh, y- you know, Obama's just coming for our, for our money. And here we sit at a, at a generational low in, in capital gains taxes, in estate taxes in terms of where the thresholds are in income taxes we are there repeatedly and 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 yes the president has called for increased taxes of uh, of a few percentage points on the very very wealthiest um and yet yet i'm seeing reactions from people just that that are that are totally lizard brain totally and the and the the refrain i hear is always the same it's mine i I work for this. It's mine. It's not yours. And I'm not saying there aren't points to be made about that. I'm not saying there aren't discussions that are worth having about what are the correct ta- rates of taxation, about what incentives get created when taxation is not appropriate, about what government does with taxes. But to just just wildly assert that we are totally responsible for everything that is ours uh, is I think, and I agree, it's diluted. Next is Luda on line three. Luda, welcome. Uh, yeah, hi. I'm uh, one of your, uh, recycler fans. And yes, I know. Uh, right. Uh, you were looking for schools in Texas that espouse sustainability. Yeah. And it came to mind this is not a university, this is a pre K through eighth grade school, but it's right here in Houston yes. on the South Loop. I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. Well, maybe there's more of them. Uh, St. Catherine's Montessori. Yep, that's the one. And I'm pretty sure it was the first LEED certified school, but hopefully it's not the only one. So I just wanted to mention we do have one, but not a university. <laughs> yeah, it's not a university, and so so uh, it is wonderful. And and um, and St. Catherine's does an amazing job. So if if you are all out there, you have young children, and you are looking to to see that they are raised during the day with consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, You'd, uh, you would recommend that school, wouldn't you? Well, I would, and I'm, I do not have long ch- uh, young children. I mean, my first-born granddaughter just went to college yesterday. <clears throat> but uh, I toured it out of sheer interest because I like the Montessori approach, and I was just fascinated by the building, and it was wonderful. Yeah, thanks for the call, Yuda. Thanks, Thank you, thanks for Thanks for bringing the discussion local and uh, making it real for us. Next up is our friend Scott. Scott, welcome to the New Capital Show. How are you? We missed you. Uh, yes, sir. I just wanted to ask your opinion on the media. Do you think the media nowadays is being run like the old Italians used to run the mafia waterfront? Um, well, my mind's working on that question right now, but maybe you can sort of tell people what your thought about it is. Well, I think uh, the majority of all the media and the broadcast stations, it's run by a bunch of radical uh, right-wingers that work out of New York, mm-hmm. and they run the me- They decide what topics get on, what don't, who gets on, and who doesn't. You know, they manipulate everything we see and hear. Yeah. I think, Scott, that m- my opinion is, uh, yes, probably, and, and I'm not that good on the topic of structural... Uh, problems in the media. There are a lot of other people here at KPFT who are much better than that at, at that than I am. It's just not an area where I have delved as deeply as others. But I would say that the media is, in many cases, the media is focused on appealing to the prurient interests of listeners. Let's just take the Houston Chronicle, for example, and its cron.com site. If you go over to cron.com, you will see a whole list of of items that to me in my judgment 
are not top priority issues for the city of Houston. You'll see lots about pro sports. You'll see lots about um, mothers beheading their children. Useless. It, uh, uh, you'll see lots about celebrities um, uh, taking their clothes off and being being caught uh, by photographers. This is. Let me remind you, the top daily newspaper, the only really daily newspaper in this city of Houston. And so I think you don't need to look much further than that to see that the media is interested in in, in appealing to the prurient lizard brain, as we were talking about earlier, interests of people. And when you do that, you take people's focus off of the interconnectedness of all, and, and you begin to put people into very small weird lonely corners where where they're isolated from from others that's that's my read on what in many cases the the mainstream news media does it 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 destroys a sense of community among people and and tells tales and stories that are simply not related to reality and the realities that we face is that helpful my comments yes that definitely helps out i agree that's why a lot of uh, people become depressed yes it is that's right. They feel alone. And I think a lot of the news that comes out of the media is meant to make people feel alone. Scott, thanks for the call. Great to have you. Thank you, sir. We at KPFT, of course, don't want you to feel alone. We want to make you feel. We don't want to make you feel. We would like you to feel uh, part of something larger. And we, we try to do that, Doyle. Yeah, I was just going to say it's very interesting that when you think about your own selfish desires, um, it makes you feel lonely. Yeah. You know, it's it very interesting. It does. But but yet. Yet it's also perfectly natural. Philip is holding on line one. Philip, welcome to the New Capital Show. Thank you very much. Um, have you watched the show, a uh, movie, uh, Gasland? What is it called? Gasland. I have not seen it. Oh well, an tell, eye tell, tell us and about it. Raping tell. and pillaging of the land, and um, it's basically these uh, ranchers are forced to uh, feed their uh, cattle poison water from the uh, frac hydrofracking, mm -hmm. the, uh, the water that goes in there, not all the water on all the chemicals, there's like 500-something chemicals that go into the into the ground, break up the shale, release the natural gas, and they come pump up the natural well, gas. Well, so hold on. The chemicals they put in there are not coming back out, and they're coming out in other areas and poisoning people's wells. Well, I've got good news for you then, Philip, because today Mitt Romney is announcing his plan for energy independence, right? Independence, right? We were talking about rugged individualism, and and mm -hmm. and here is the other delusion: energy independence, right? We're not going to count on anybody else for our energy, uh, even though, of course, we could we could we could be the ultimate dependent uh, wards of the sun through solar power, which is growing incredibly fast. What would be more amazing than to say we are totally energy dependent on the sun? We depend upon our star, our life giver, for for energy. Uh, and we could take that position. What a wonderful position that would be to be totally energy dependent. I'm waiting for a presidential candidate to say, we would like to be totally energy dependent by the year 2020 on the sun and the wind. Would you like that? Or do you want to be, so what, you know what Mitt Romney is announced. That's where we should go. That's exactly yeah, where Mitt, we should go. Mitt Romney is somebody who can stand up and stand up and have a, flat, a backbone and stand up for the principles. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be pure and 100% free yeah. from the sun. That's right. And the other thing is that these uh, gasland fracking, um, basically this, this uh, chemicals are coming up, and the, the, the humans can't, uh, can't consume the water because it's carcinogenic and has all kinds of side yeah. effects. But the cattle are, are somehow able to drink it or whatever, and the ranchers are having to sell this meat. Philip, no. thanks, thanks for the call. Great to have you in Gasland. We will take it upon your recommendation to see it. Thanks so much. Mitt Romney announced today um, his energy plan to make the U.S. energy independent by 2020. Uh, at the end of his second term as president, he says, his, his plan would allow states more control over the development of energy resources on federal lands within their borders. Right? So, so federal land, and there's not that much of it in Texas, actually, but there's quite a bit in places like Colorado and Wyoming and and uh, Utah, um, that the, the states would take control of the federal lands and have, a, have the ability to say they're going to drill there. So this is more drilling on federal lands in control of the states, and it would also include drilling on the coast of Virginia and the Carolinas. Uh, he says this is not a pie-in-the-sky thing. It's a real achievable objective, and it's going to 
include, of course, offshore drilling, natural gas liquids, biofuels, oil sands in Canada and Mexico, and hydrofracking. Uh, okay, I mean, let's drill the place up, right? There's the, there is, and it's not free, let's be clear, Philip, it's not free energy from the sun because we have to build infrastructure to capture that through panels and distribution. But certainly, certainly the raw material itself is free from the sun and doesn't involve any destruction, drilling, or any other thing. So there you go. You've got the choice. If you want to, if you want to get energy independence, I mean, look, this is so old. There's nothing new about it, uh, right? Sarah Palin, drill, baby, drill. There's nothing different. It's the same old plan from the Republicans, and and um, we are doing more drilling, and uh, we are getting results out of that. But let's not kid ourselves that we're going to be energy independent. It's just. Not something that's going to happen. Next is Larry, line three. Larry, welcome to the New Capital Show. And you'll Nope. Larry's not there. Let's take Jeff on line one. Hey Jeff, welcome. Hey, I was just wondering if you guys had talked about the uh Lamar County judge Bill Harris that just said that uh Trans Canada or Keystone XL can use eminent domain. No, I, I hadn't seen anything on it. Tell us tell us what's uh, there and you just mm-hmm. uh Ruling in Paris, Texas, from Lamar County Court at Law, Judge Bill Harris. Uh, anyway, it says Texas rebellion over private party rights and major new oil pipeline is up a setback by Judge Lamar County. They can, uh, they have, Trans Canada has the right to exercise the power of eminent domain to run the Keystone XL pipeline across an opposing landowner's property. Okay, so that would that would entitle them to be able to take the land and use it for the for the pipeline. Right. So, so for those who oppose the pipeline, that's bad news, and for those who are for the pipeline, it's good news. Right. Jeff, Jeff, thanks for the call. Uh, okay, that does it. We're out of time, folks. We are there. Thanks. Another edition of the New Capital Show is over. NewCapitalShow.com, and you can send me email at leogold at NewCapitalShow.com. Find me on Facebook, okay? Just uh, search me there, and I will friend you back. Thanks to Doyle. Take care. Run for a seat on the local station board here at KPFT. Join 23 other members from diverse communities across Houston working to ensure that KPFT fulfills its mission to the people. To register, go online at kpft.org. As a prospective listener-sponsored candidate, you must collect 15 signatures from other listener members to be placed on the ballot. If you register no later than 9 a.m. on Monday, August 27th, you will be included in an online signature drive, which will help you gather the signatures you need to be placed on the ballot. So don't delay. Go to kpft.org to register today. This announcement was brought to you by KPFT Houston. Secure your right to vote. Become a member of KPFT by donating at least $25 by September 1st, 2012, and you will be able to vote in KPFT's 2012 election. Why does a vote matter? Well, as a voting member of KPFT, you ensure that the democratic experiment that is listener-supported community radio lives on in Houston. You become a part of a collective effort to make sure that KPFT has the resources it needs to deliver on its mission to the people, to promote peace and to promote justice. And you get a vote to protect your investment in KPFT. So donate today. It's only $25. You can give securely online at kpft.org.